Welcome to Scribble and Natter, a podcast that explores the often unknown topics of the life of a creative freelancer, how to get clients, how to earn some dough, and how to maintain a career in the creative freelance world. My first guest is a DOP, Director of Photography, hailing from Down Under. Oscar Partridge is a member of the BAFTA crew. Uh, His first job of his career was on the set of the Oscar-winning film The Great Gatsby, which we talk about later. Uh, Now with notable awards and nominations in his own right, Oscar works on commercials, music videos and narrative films, and he's in high demand for his eyes and his camera work. I think we have to address the C word straight away. And say that we're doing this remotely. Oh, uh, we are. Yes, uh, due to COVID nineteen. I was going to say quarantine does not start with the uh, with a C, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, the Q word. There you go. <laughs> uh, first things first, Oscar. Um, on a very basic level, you're a DOP. Um, why a career in film? You know, it's a big question for anyone to answer. And I think for many people, they fall into it as much as as anything else. For me, I absolutely love the medium of film. I always have. I adore visual storytelling. It's the most beautiful way to tell a story. And I think, you know, anecdotally for me, my paternal grandmother raised me as a through and through Anglophile you know, without me even knowing it. And, um, you know, that was on a healthy diet of a touch of frost, you know, heartbeat, the bill, Poirot, Wallace and Gromit, you know, everything that that represented great British drama and the storytelling powers of, um, you know, of the BBC that was, you know, whimsical and incredible to me. And uh, it seemed so far away at the time, but I think from day dot, I knew that I was on a pathway to work in film and the fact that it, it brought me to the UK is, now that I look back on it, no surprise. Um, and, it, and it was, you know, always going to be something that happened. And, uh, and here I am. Mm. What kind of age was that when you were kind of viewing those very UK-based dramas, actually, aren't they? You know, I was really young. My grandma would babysit me a lot. And um, she would always have it tuned over to the ABC, which is um, our BBC in Australia. And, you know, all of these shows would be, would be running. She'd have repeats on VHS. We'd, we'd always have something to watch and, and we'd play catch-ups on episodes that I'd missed, you know, in between weeks where I hadn't seen her. So, you know, it was yeah, yeah. even just in preparation for this podcast, it was so wonderful and nostalgic for me to sort of deep dive back into the, you know, that period of my life and think about how formative that was. You know, our grandparents' generation were the last true analog medium generation. You know, they had vinyl. They had Super 8, uh, you know, they, they shot on 35mm, they shot Box Brownie, um, they shot Top Down, um, you know, Inverted Prisms, you know, their whole approach to capturing still and motion images was analogue and, you know, our parents' generation off the back of that, you know, was pulling away from that and, and moving into that sort of, I guess, par digital, par analogue realm. And then, of course, we succeeded that and, and went full digital. But I think our affinity to analogue filmmaking is so heavily influenced by our grandparents' generation. And I think yeah, your story and my story are probably not unique. I think a lot of filmmakers probably have that connection in some way, shape or form. I'm going to refer back to before we kind of did the podcast, we had a bit of a chat about your role in The Great Gatsby. 
and that was your first job out of uni, wasn't it? That you you said, but you you've also mentioned that that was a massive, I want to say, surprise and kind of unexpected environment to what you studied. Um, how was that for your first role? You know, it was an incredible experience coming straight out of my last last days of, of uni and stepping onto set on The Great Gatsby. Um, you know, which all of the production happened in uh, Sydney, in Australia, and in, in sort of surrounding suburbia and in the greater New South Wales region. Right, yeah. Um, so, so very much an Australian film and, and Baz Luhrmann, obviously a very Australian director. Um, and so, you know, the, the fact that that was my first interaction with major motion picture, it really it was utterly awesome and it blew my mind. Um, and the, the way that I got onto set was, you know, it was serendipitous in some ways that earlier in the year I had purchased a student membership for the Australian Cinematographers Society for um, a friend of mine who's gone on to become an incredible commercial director, Dave Burrows. And um, he got the call up uh, on the last day of uni as we're all sitting in class ready to graduate. And uh, they were calling from the uh, production office of The Great Gatsby and uh, they said, we're looking for camera attachments. Come on board. We want you to start tomorrow. Um, and he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I don't really want to be in camera department, but I, I think this is too good an opportunity to miss. And uh, he said, oh, so I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. So he, he took that opportunity and he said to me uh, as he walked out the door um, that, you know, if there was any way he could drop my name, get, he would get me on set as well. And... Lo and behold, they said, do you know anyone who wants to work in camera department? And they gave me a call. And uh, I started the very next day and I was on and off for three weeks uh, at the end of 2011. Amazing. What, how old were you then? I was 20. Yeah. 20 years old. Like what, what were you actually doing physically during the days and your, and your time there? Yeah, the, the role was um, for a camera attachment and the uh, position was connected to the satellite unit, not the main unit. So there were two units mm. running, and satellite unit at that point was looking after uh, all of the green screen stunts, car chases, um, and any sort of nighttime pickup scenes. And so our days were spent working in the dockyards in Sydney underneath the Anzac Bridge, and uh, they created huge kilometre long green screens and moving tracks to do car chase sequences, uh, dummy sequences, uh, all, all these type of incredible VFX shots. Um, so I was attached to all of the camera departments on the satellite unit and I was providing general trainee and assistant services. I was running coffees. Cool. I was watching and learning. I was you know, rolling up cables and I was just overwhelmed and unbelievably grateful just to be there. And it was an incredibly high-paced, fast learning experience, yeah. Yeah, can imagine. And one of our main points when we spoke about this before was the difference between a formal education and then being on a set and seeing the difference and what your role actually entails when you come to, to a proper job in Inverticom. We, we both touched on the point that a formal education is great to an extent, but in terms of the reality of being on set, it can be quite different and a bit of a baptism of fire, would you say? Yeah, it's, it's chalk and cheese. Um, for, for me, my time on The Great Gatsby was, um, you know, that was the real film school. Um, and it was three weeks and not three years 
that that I needed and it didn't cost me anything but my time and the opportunity to, to be there. It was hands-on and it was fast and it was, um, uh, you know, it was a window into the massive world of film and by comparison, my undergraduate film degree did not give me that. It gave me a lot of things, but it, it did not give me that. And that is, I think, the edge that you need if you want to work in, and be in film. Yeah, yeah. I Likewise, I remember my first job out of uni and sitting down for an internship. I studied graphic design and the creative director said, can you mock up a website banner or something like that? And he said, open Photoshop but this there, this there, this there, and I did not know how to do it. I knew how to come up with big, grand ideas that as a 18 to 21-year-old isn't going to get you anywhere. Sit down for an internship. How do you use Photoshop? First question is not the one. But yes, learning on the job is a very big thing. I think that we both kind of have very similar feelings and uh, experiences of by the sounds of it there is a lot of stigma placed on people um, especially young post high school teens who've just recently graduated looking at at their life and, and working out what they want to do there's a lot of stigma on those who who don't attend um, tertiary institutions for you know postgraduate undergraduate education and I think that that stigma has certainly grown more in recent years and in recent generations mm. um, and very much applies to us. But um, I think that for a lot of people who want a career in, in film, university can act as like a bit of a safety net for them and, and potentially for their family uh, in accepting that pathway and accepting that career. Um, but in my opinion, and this could be considered quite controversial, um, so, so please you know, take it that it's anecdotal from, from my perspective. But it, the reality is you don't learn what you need to be a functional filmmaker in the classroom mm. and you learn it by getting out there and doing it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point to bring up, actually, that this is very personal to the way that we experience formal education and how that progresses into your career. I think it we both have to be very careful and... and explaining as you just have that this is our personal experience of yeah. uh, formal education versus on the job I think that's actually a common theme that as someone having a creative career that there's no right or wrong path perhaps formal education may suit someone down to the ground and they may thrive off that environment and be landed into their professional career in a really strong position that they have no regrets of their formal education but there's other people that will naturally learn by doing in the environment of an actual set and a job. Um, there's no right or wrong way, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know what you think. And these are our personal experiences, aren't yeah, they? So, yeah. it, is, it is interesting that, that you say that because if you now posed the question back to me, and you know, you asked me whether I would change anything by not going to film school. Mm. The reality is, is that I wouldn't change anything about my tertiary education experience because the, the people I met at uni are now the film family that I turn to for everything. Um, they're my collaborators, uh, my closest friends, um, and again, a very formative part of my, you know, passion and love for film came mm. from a safe place to learn and a safe place to make mistake. And, and to some extent that, that is what university was for me also. So 
you know, if we're playing devil's advocate, and I think you are, it, it could be the right environment for, for certain people and it might not be for others. Ultimately, my, my business partner is uh, someone I went to university with, my closest friends and my my peers from university. So by me saying that for you and I, perhaps it, directly it didn't lead to being able to be great on set. There's so much positives from it. So I've kind of done a bit of a U-turn there, <laughs> but but for for the right reasons, like an education isn't wasted. I, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Going forward, how do you get new clients personally? Like, what's your go-to? Is it do you get a lot? from word of mouth for example or do you find social media to be a really strong thing is there coffees do you go for pints do you bribe people how how do you find what do you think works the best it's uh it's it's a great question and i think that there's a there's an umbrella answer which is you know relationships first and everything else is is a conduit to developing and creating new relationships so um you know if being active on social media or taking people for coffees or, you know, dropping people a line or pinging people an email. Um, you know, if all of those are gateways to you creating relationships, then that's the right approach. I think where people get a little derailed is when they are trying to solicit for work across all of these platforms, but they forget to be genuine and they forget to actually create meaningful relationships with people that don't just, um, you know, act as transactional relationships, but lead on to lifelong friends and incredible creative collaborations. Because at the end of the day, mm. you know, your financial wealth and security and well-being will come from genuine interactions with people. And I think that the business of filmmaking and putting money in your pocket can often get in the way. Yeah. Yes, you are your own salesperson. Yes, you are representing yourself and selling yourself in as the best means for that producer, that director or that production to achieve what it is that they want to achieve. But in the same breath, mm. um, I think people know in the 21st century, we're all constantly being sold to. Everyone knows they're being sold to when they're being sold to. And so you don't want to be just uh, another a brown noser or a door tapper or a tire kick as somebody who's constantly soliciting for work and, and doesn't have anything mm. genuine or wholesome or holistic to offer. So come to the table with more than just a sales pitch and a flashy showreel. So over your career, has there been times where you've been particularly quiet and maybe a little bit worried about the way things are going? Personal reasons, uh, career reasons, people just not giving you any job. Like, have you had those moments and how have you dealt with those? Yeah, I was, I was very fortunate from quite early on after film school, having an incredible mentor, uh, an amazing filmmaker and DOP, Jim Hare. Um, Californian guy who's uh, lived in in Australia for a very long time and uh, he told me very early on he sort of held my hand through a lot of my initial fears and my initial hurdles uh, and he said the most important thing is that if anyone tells you that they know when your peaks and when your troughs are going to be if anyone tells you when the work's going to be there and when the work's not going to be there you know turn your back and walk away 
because no one can predict what's going to happen. And I think right now, uh, you know, in the, in the current political and uh, social climate where we're being impacted by coronavirus, this is just another example of, of things you can't forecast for, no matter how diligent you are, how fiscally responsible you are, how great a communicator you are, things can happen. And it's impossible hmm. to always know how and what that's going to look like. Uh, do you find most people in the film industry to kind of be supporting you in your day-to-day -day life and your career? Have you, have you found great help in, in your peers? You know, I've, I've found in incredible help in my peers. Uh, you know, it reveals a lot when you say that um, a lot of people in, in the industry are scared to ask for help or scared to ask for advice, uh, either because they're scared of not looking intelligent or potentially they're scared they won't like the answer that they get. Um, the, the best way to overcome that fear, in my opinion, is always ask the questions, especially ask the hard ones, even if you think it makes you look like you don't know as much as you should, uh, because there'll always be an answer waiting for you. And the likelihood is that for the small inconvenience of learning a truth that you'd prefer to remain ignorant about is the light at the end of the tunnel. You fix the error in your ways and um, hopefully your your business um, and your work in, in the industry goes on to be mm. to be more prosperous or more profitable as a result of that yeah people are all right <laughs> people are all right yeah <laughs> yeah going back to something that you have been able to do um isolation aside was your narrative piece the foreigner how did that come about i had a watch of it over the last week because we've got more time on our hands and it's a really unique take on a quite a poignant subject, actually, about... Well, you, you tell me, how, how did the collaboration come about and what was your involvement with it? Did you help write it, for example? Yeah, so uh, I'm not a dab hand at writing yeah, and okay. I think my, uh, my past grade in university creative writing probably uh, was an early indicator of that. I met the writer and director, Ben Allen, uh, funnily enough, on an LGBT filmmakers forum on Facebook. And uh, mm -hmm. we connected. He liked my, my previous commercial work uh, and I loved his um, first short film. So we met and we became uh, very good friends and went on to make the film together with our incredible uh, producer Charlotte Halley who uh, used to be a producer with Seesaw Films yeah. and so she'd worked on some incredibly incredibly major motion picture films and the fact that she was able to find uh, time to come on board and produce The Foreigner it sort of was the, the trifecta mm -hmm. having having the three of us collaborate the script really jumped out at me for, for all of the reasons that you, you've already said that it's it's sort of socio-politically poignant at the moment it's very relevant and um you know, very, very briefly, it follows the, the story of a young British man journeying uh, through a broken Europe and finding himself seeking asylum on the Turkish border and entering into a very intense discussion with the Turkish border force as to making a justification as to why he should be allowed to seek asylum in, in Turkey. And uh, it, it's a sort of a, a socio-political reversal on the current border crisis, immigrant crisis, yeah, yeah. you know, all of these in inverted commas. And for me, it was a story that, that needed to be told. And uh, now with countries closing their borders all around Europe and Asia and in the Western world and in the Eastern world, uh, I think mm. never a better time to, uh, to, to keep sharing this, this story and hopefully, you know, that, that, that point lands home. Talking about 
BAFTA. You became part of their crew in 2019, I, I think. Is that yeah, that's correct. Yeah. How how does that come about? Presumably through hard work and determination to to kind of blanket it with a how do you get there? Yeah. But how do you become part of the BAFTA crew? I mean, how how did that come about for you? Well, BAFTA crew and BFI Network is an exceptional professional skills development program that uh, a lot of people in the industry will be eligible for and it's very simple to apply you fill out an application come april may every year and BAFTA and BFI come together and assess your application and, and if you're eligible and they like your work and your work is notable enough then they will accept you into the program and in certain circumstances some people will even be offered opportunities to be um, directly mentored i think specifically producers, directors and screenwriters who are developing features and have already received specific BAFTA-related credits. So worth checking it out and it's so far been an exceptional opportunity, something that you get out what you put in, Mm -hmm. um, but it does lend itself to giving you some legitimacy in London and the UK, especially where the industry is highly competitive and very saturated. Because how long have you been in the UK now? If you don't mind me asking. It's been two years, uh, a couple of days ago, funnily enough. Okay, your anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Two of the things that I'd love answered in Squibble and Natter is a couple of tips for someone starting out. Tell us your biggest tip for someone starting out in the film world. My biggest tip is to learn to say no, which can sound intimidating and... A little counterintuitive if you're starting out in the film industry fresh-faced and eager to work however i think that it's unbelievably important that you learn to say no early on because that will help you incredibly in substantiating the type of filmmaker that you are the type of projects that you're prepared to work on the fact that you know how to assess the quality of a project and that you're not a pushover and you're not always a guaranteed yes which some producers will rely on Um, and some directors will push for. And I think for for me, I learned to say no at a very hard time in my life. I got uh, quite sick at the end of 2014. was fortunate enough to make a a full recovery some months later. But over that period of time, it gave me a a very legitimate opportunity to say no and start saying no to to work. And it was a habit I got into and uh, a habit I never got out of. And I think that works really well if you are... Uh, considered about the way that you do it and that you're not turning around and just saying no but providing legitimate and conscionable reasons as to why you might not feel that this project is the right one for you and i guess that can be a pressure that is applied from day one on someone pursuing a freelance career is that the pressure is to say yes to everything isn't it because you feel you have to you've got rent to pay yeah exactly you've got food to put on the table and Tell us something that you'd advise against for someone starting out. So the biggest, the, the biggest no-no, which is is not mine. I've inherited this from my mentor Jim Hare, and it is to not work for free. And Jim always said to me that the only thing you do by working for free is that you show others that you perceive yourself to have no value, and that can take a lot of different forms. And I'm the first to say that I've worked for free a lot. Um, and, you know, you will be able to assess 
the right project to work for free on. And if you feel that that project is going to, it has intrinsic value, uh, it's going to be, a, you know, a, a passion project or a film that, that has a good cause, mm. um, where you feel that there will be a legitimate and uh, successful relationship that might come out of it, then sometimes saying yes to, to that free work is, is the right thing to do. And unfortunately, you'll have to assess that, you know, when you're in the situation. But within the context of work that is very prolific, you know, branded content, branded documentary and commercial, there's really no reason that you should be being asked to work for free. And that if you say yes to that, you're setting up a precedent where you're perceived to, unfortunately, in certain circumstances and by certain producers or production companies, mm. have no value. And I think it's it's important to make sure that you set off with the right foot forward and always provide a rate that is fair for the work that you're going to do and that is competitive in the market that you're in. Um, but that is not a zero dollar or a zero pound figure. On the note of rates, one of the things I struggled with, particularly in the early years, is how do I get my pricing right? Where do I get my pricing from? Nowadays, where would you get your pricing from and how do you set set the tone for being in the right position with that? Well, I think, I think rate cards are important. Letting your client know that you have a, a set schedule for your, your labour and for your equipment um, ready to go sounds as if that it, it's a rate that is legitimate and has always existed. Um, and having that prior prepared to um, provide to the... Uh, to, the, to the client can help in your favour in this regard. But I think, um, you know, when, when I moved over from Sydney to London, I needed to reassess my rates. And the way that I did that was I DM'd fellow DPs in the London circle and uh, took them for coffees and asked them all of the questions that I have had British DPs ask me in Australia, which is what is the market rate? What is the union rate? What is the compromise rate? Mm. Who is negotiating and, and how hard-nosed do you have to be when negotiating? Um, and what are, the, what are the unions and guilds that exist to you know, protect and effectively moderate how price structures work for crew across commercial and um, narrative and branded production in the UK. And I got a lot of answers um, that allowed me to formulate a really clear cut picture of, of what that looked like and allowed me to move forward with a, a clear vision about my approach. Sure. And personally, I know of the APA, if anyone wants a reference point. Are there any other rate cards that you'd advise people to seek out? There are a few uh, unions and guilds available uh, and for for every single head of department and every single crew member, there is technically a guild or a union that looks after them specifically. So I know that there's a British Camera Operators Guild that looks after camera department and camera assistants specifically as compared to Cinematographers Guild, which is the British Society of Cinematographers. So, I, you know, in, in every respect, there will be a very specific place for you as a crew member or you as a creative to go to be informed specifically within the, the remit of, of your department on set. Um, however, for, 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 for me, and as you said, APA and BEC2 are the, the two major 
um, guilds slash unions that, that exist to inform um, production companies as to how pay um, and rates should be managed on set. Um, and I think, I think it's important to learn to negotiate on your, your uh, own behalf as well. Good. And to add a disclaimer, other brands are available. <laughs> yes, other, other brands are available. <laughs> I, 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 off the top of my head, I, I can't remember them all today. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Oscar, where can people see your work? Where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram at Oscar Partridge DOP. You can find my commercial portfolio uh, at oscarpartridge.com and you can see our commercial offering uh, for our production company at acuityproductions.co. That's A-C-U-I-T-Y. Awesome. Thank you so much, mate. Thank you very much, my friend. First guest. Enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been incredible. Thank you for having me on. Good luck with your self-isolation. I'll see you on the other side. Thank you for being my first guest. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. As Oscar said, you can see his work over at oscarpartridge.com and you can check out his Instagram, oscarpartridgedop, and keep an eye out for The Foreigner. Huge thanks to James Jones for helping me record and edit this thing. Invaluable. Check him out at thisislocationsound.com. I hope you enjoyed the first of the series and thanks to Oscar. If you've got any particular requests or topics and content for the next episode, leave a comment. Until next time, bye.